Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for staying today, and we're glad to have you here. Does anyone need a sermon handout? Didn't get a sermon handout? Speak now or forever hold your peace. All right, nice job. Awesome. All right, so uh, we're looking forward to continuing God's Word today. And so if you'll turn your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2, back to the text where we've been starting for the last couple of weeks. Revelation chapter number two, we're going to continue our series today uh, called Ignite, Rediscovering Our Lost Passion for God. So Revelation chapter two, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the passage here today. Father, we're thankful for the chance we have now to open your word, and God, I pray you'd meet with us, I pray you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray you'd help me today and fill me with your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and help us to... Be different because of what we learned today. Help us to put it into practice, Lord. And we're, we're thankful for the practicality of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And so this week, uh, we're going to be beginning here in Revelation chapter number two again. And I want to uh, kind of give you some uh, recap of where we've been and then where we're going. If you haven't been following along and haven't been able to be here for every week, I encourage you to go back either on Spotify or on our website or YouTube and catch up with the series so you can kind of understand uh, where we've been and where we're going to be today. Uh, but in Revelation chapter two, we're looking at a letter here written to the Ephesian church. So the Apostle John wrote seven letters to seven specific churches. And the first of these letters here, as they were to go around uh, Turkey and Asia Minor to all of these seven churches, the first of the letter was to the Ephesian church. And John begins the letter by telling the Ephesian church a lot of things that they were doing right on the outside. They had stood for truth in a day that had compromised truth. They had uh, discerned right from wrong in a world that uh, didn't know what the Scripture said about what was right and what was wrong. They even, the Bible even tells us in, in verse 6 that they hated a group of people who God hated because they mocked God. And so they had done a lot of things right. They were this uh, pillar and ground of the truth here in a wicked city. Nevertheless, John had something against this church because they had left their first love. And we've seen over the last two weeks that nothing is more important. The greatest commandment that God gives us is that we should love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our minds. And that no matter what we get right on the outside, if we've lost our love and our passion and our devotion for Christ, then we've lost it all. And right at the end of the, the, the letter here, in verse number five, we see three encouragements or three steps forward that John gave the church. Let's read verse 5 together. The Bible says this, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So the three steps forward for this church that has lost their love and their passion was to remember from whence thou hast fallen, to repent, and then to return and to do the first works. Last week, we spent some time understanding what it means to remember. And I encourage you, and I hope some of you took me up on the challenge this week, to go through some of those passages I gave you last week and look for the goodness and faithfulness of God. I encourage you to have an anniversary between you and the Lord. And just remember his goodness and remember how he saved you and how he's brought you through the journey of life and how he's blessed you. And just challenged us to take some time to look at the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And today, we're going to look at that second one, the second R, and we're going to try to understand what it means to repent. 
What is biblical repentance and how it applies within this context to a group of people who have lost their love and their desire for God, all right? And so that's where we're going today. I want you to notice, number one with me, repentance defined. If we're going to talk about repentance today, which we are, we all got to get on the same page and have a proper biblical understanding and definition of what repentance is. And there's two things I think are very important for us to grasp here this afternoon as we understand biblical repentance. The word repent is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a few different words that help us to understand the meaning, words that are all translated into the English Bible, repent. In the, in the Old Testament, there's a few Hebrew words. Uh, one means to be sorry or to have regret. And the other word translated repent very simply means to turn. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word that's always translated repent, and it very simply means this, to change one's mind. Very simply, repent means to change one's mind. So from the Old Testament, we can see it means to be sorry. Uh, We can see it means to turn. And from the New Testament, it means to change one's mind. It's that we as sinners would change our mind about our sin and choose to see it the way that God sees it as a violation of God's law and breaking God's heart who loves us. It's changing our mind about our sin. However, I think we're doing an injustice to repentance if we stop there and say that it's simply a change of mind. See, you can see in the Old Testament that the word turn, it involves and invokes some sort of action for us. And in your outlines, I want you to see this definition. This is the definition we're going to use throughout our whole time together this afternoon. The repentance is a changed mind resulting in changed actions and direction. A changed mind, which results in changed action and direction. It's not just simply a changed mind, but it's going to change our actions and our directions. Last Sunday after the afternoon service, Aloma and I kind of got out of here quickly. We were heading uh, to Ancaster, which is not too far from where I grew up, to my sister's house because uh, my nephew had his first birthday. And so we were kind of trying to get there as quick as we could and spend some time with family and then pretty quickly turn it around and get back to our house uh, for small group we, that we have that meets on Sunday nights. And so we got there and we had a great time with family and then we were getting ready to go. And uh, one thing you need to know about me, it's just, I just got to confess it to you this, this afternoon, is I am not all that good with directions. In fact, I'm just, I'm just not good at directions at all. Especially, I have one specific weakness, all right? I really struggle of knowing which way to turn when I get off of the highway. When I take an off-ramp off of the highway, and even if it's somewhere I've been a thousand times, even if I'm going home, very often I will turn the wrong way off the off-ramp. I do it all the time. So much so that Aloma now just kind of does one of these. As we get off the highway, she just does one of these. She doesn't say anything. She just kind of points, just reinforces which way are we heading, right? Sometimes I really appreciate that. Sometimes if I'm not in the best of moods, I don't always appreciate it, right? I'm like, I knew that. That's where I was going to go anyways. Um, But I'm not all that good with directions. And so we got back in the car uh, last Sunday afternoon, and we're trying to kind of hustle to get back to our house. And we turned out of the driveway, and sure enough, I missed my very first turn. (laughs) The very first turn to head back to the highway. And I knew I missed it. Aloma knew I missed it. I said it right out loud. That was my turn. I missed it. But I thought, you know what? I know the area a little bit. I know there's another exit for the highway further up. And so even though I had confessed my fault, I thought, I'll just, I'll keep going and I'll find out another way. I'll get to the next way to get on the highway. So I kept kind of going along the road and traffic kind of started to slow down a little bit. And then there was 
cones that brought it from two lanes down to one lane. And then I saw that dreaded sign, the one that our church knows so well this summer. It says this, road closed. (sighs) And Aloma, right when I missed the thing, she said, why don't you just stop and turn around? I said, no, 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 I got this. I'll figure it out. So sure enough, I had to stop and I had to turn around. Why do I tell you that, that illustration? Because repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action and direction. Right away when I missed my turn, I was quick to confess my faults. I said, oh, I missed my turn, but I didn't change my actions or my directions. I kept going and trying to figure something out of my own way and figure a new path on my own. But repentance is when I finally stopped and made the U-turn and changed directions 100 degrees because my change of mind led to a change of action and direction into my life. That's what repentance looks like for us. Jesus came preaching the message of repentance. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 14, Now after that John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus came with a message of repentance. All throughout the gospel, you can see Jesus, his mission was telling sinners to repent. He came that sinners may repent of their sins and turn and believe the gospel. We see this message of repentance follow through all the way through the book of Acts after Jesus' ascension and the beginning of the local church. There's some awesome passages on repentance in the book of Acts. I want to read you just one verse this afternoon. The Bible says this in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Bible here in both of these examples is talking about repentance when it comes to our salvation. That we, as we realize our sin and our need for a Savior, we turn from our self-sufficiency, we turn from our sin and our pride, and we turn to God and put our faith in God. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Now, I want to just take 30 seconds and address this. There are some who believe that teaching repentance is necessary for salvation means that we are teaching a works-based salvation. And here's what I mean by this. If repentance, true repentance, is a change of actions, and repentance is necessary for salvation, then isn't a change of actions necessary for salvation? Therefore, it's a works-based salvation, right? Maybe not so much. Here's, Here's what we would say to this biblically. Repentance is not a change of action. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. If we just change our actions, that's just cleaning up our life. It's just reformation. It's just cleaning things up on the outside. But true repentance starts in the mind and the heart and always leads to change on the outside. It's not that our works are our repentance, it's that works and action always follow true repentance. Isn't that what James teaches us in his epistle, when he teaches us the balance between faith and works? He says, faith without works is dead. Not that we are saved by our good works, but that the presence of true faith and saving faith is always evidenced by good works in our life. And so if someone tries to tell you that repentance is not necessary for salvation because it's a works-based salvation, tell them no. Repentance is a change of mind about our sin, but real true repentance always leads to change action and direction. So we see repentance is so, so essential for salvation. That one moment where we U-turn, we say, God, I'm a sinner 
and I need you as a savior. I'm turning from self and sin, I'm turning to you. However, this is the second thing you need to know in understanding repentance and defining repentance today. All throughout the Bible, including our text today of Revelation chapter 2, repentance is talked about in reference to believers, people who are already saved. And so we understand that repentance is not just a one-and-done thing in the life of the believer. Repentance is something that we are to continually apply to our lives as we try to follow Jesus. Another great example of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. I think it's in your outline there. Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know the, the, the church there in Corinth had a whole lot of issues. And Paul's dealing with some of them. And we know that uh, history teaches that Paul wrote more than just two letters to the Corinthians. Most people believe he wrote four. And in 2 Corinthians, in our Bible, Paul is referencing back to a letter he had written to the Corinthian church. He wrote them a strongly worded, blunt, confrontational letter. He said, hey, you got sin in your church and you got sin in your, life and you, your lives and you need, to confront, you need to deal with that. I'm confronting, I'm rebuking you because of your sin. And here, Paul is referencing back to that letter. And he's like, ah, oh, I was nervous. I was, I was almost sorry to send you that letter because I thought it's either going to turn you back to God or it's going to send you even further into your sin. You ever had one of those conversations with someone when you try to go and help them, you try to confront them with their sin, and you know it's either going to make a big difference for the right, in the right direction, or it might send them even further into the wrong direction. And Paul is kind of addressing that. And look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8. He says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice that you were made, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye may receive damage by us in nothing. Paul's like, hey, the sorrow that you felt when you read that letter, it brought about a change in you. It led you to repentance. And he's, he's congratulating the church and encouraging them, hey, I've seen repentance in your life. And so we clearly see that repentance is not just something for the unsaved or the unbelievers, but it's something that's supposed to be a part of our lives. Here's what it really is. It's an attitude of our heart. It's a posture towards God. It's a desire to follow Jesus and a willingness to admit when we don't. A willingness to continually over and over again turn, adjust, and realign our lives to God and his word. To use my illustration of driving again. You know, when I made that U-turn, I got headed in the right direction. But if you drive with me long enough, I guarantee you this, that's not the, the last wrong turn I'm going to make. So though I was headed in the right direction, there's going to be times in life where I'm going to have to readjust, realign. There's going to be corrections to be made with the steering wheel to assure that I'm heading in the direction that I'm supposed to be going. And similarly, though we've made a U-turn and we're following Christ and we're Christians, there's still adjustments that need to be made. There's still times when our life can get off course a little bit and we need to repent and turn back to God and his path for us. That's repentance, a change of mind the results in change of action and a changed direction. We see our sin, we acknowledge it. We turn by faith from self to God and pursue a life of holiness. We continually are willing to admit and confess our sin and make constant adjustments to get back on track and following Christ. That's repentance defined. But let's look at repentance displayed. I want to stay here in 2 Corinthians 7. So if you have your Bibles or you're there in your outline, let's look here again. 
if repentance is a change of actions and a change of directions, it means that we can see some evidences on the outside that true repentance has taken place on the inside. Because repentance is always followed by a change of action and direction. So what does the display or the evidence of repentance look like? In this letter to the Corinthians, Paul continues to talk to them a little bit about some evidences, some ways that he knows that they truly repented. And there's seven of them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm going to kind of move through them quickly. But I want you to write them down. What I hope this could be for you is a bit of a personal self-checklist. Have you truly repented from your sin? Is there a sin that you have been struggling with and you say, I think I've, I, I, I've told the Lord about it. I think I've repented. Well, these are the evidences according to scripture that true repentance has taken place in our lives. We left off in verse number nine of 2 Corinthians. Let's look at verse 10. The Bible says this, for behold, oh sorry, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now really focus on verse 11. For behold this selfsame thing, that she sorrowed after a godly sort. There's number one, sorrow. An evidence of true repentance is a sorrow in our hearts and our lives. It's an emotion that realizes and recognizes that we view our sin the way God views it. We've just been talking in our small groups this week from James 4 about, about the seriousness of our sin. And asking God to break our hearts over our sin. Not to grow casual or caustic towards the, the weight of our sin. It's a very easy thing to do. And Paul's like, hey, I've seen in your lives that you sorrowed over your sin. I mean, you took it seriously. You saw it broke the heart of God and it broke your heart too. If you have a casual attitude about your sin, yeah, sure, I sinned. I confess it to the Lord, but if I do it again, no big deal. I'll tell you, that's not true repentance. True repentance works a godly sorrow in our life. There ought to be a seriousness about it. Look at number two. He, he says there in verse 11, uh, he says, what, you sorrowed after a godly sort. Look at this, what carefulness it wrought in you. There's number two, carefulness. When we fall, we ought to take care that we don't fall again. You ever been driving? I'm using a lot of driving illustrations today. You ever been driving and then you kind of like slip off the road a little bit and hit the rumble strips. And you're like, oh, I, oh, I better wake up. Better make sure I'm doing the right thing. I better make sure I'm, I'm awake. Because when we fall and we get out of line, there ought to be a certain carefulness that it awakes in us. Man, I don't want to fall again. When you tell someone, hey, to take care, you're telling them to be careful. And Paul's saying, I've seen a carefulness in you. That you so desperately don't want to fall into sin again that you're taking proper care to make sure you're staying far from the edge, that you're walking the path that God wants you to walk, carefulness. Look at number three. The, the Bible says there in verse 11, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation. Indignation. A righteous anger for sin and its effect in your life. Man, you're angry. I can't believe I fell into sin. I don't want to do that anymore. That's not the life I want to live. You're angry at the devil and the world and your sin. I mean, it's a, it's a passion I don't want to fall into sin again. Continuing on, look what it says. It says, yea, what fear. Very similar to carefulness. We ought to have a healthy fear and respect for the power and the consequences of sin. We're not to fear sin. We're not to fear the devil. Perfect love casts out fear. But there ought to be a healthy respect for sin and its power and its consequences in our life. It's not something to be joked about. 
Sin can ruin families. Sin can ruin churches. Sin can ruin lives. And we ought to fear it and its consequences and its effects in our lives. It's a sign of true repentance. Look, continuing on, yet what fear, yea, what vehement desire. I mean, this is a passionate desire that we would be free from our sin. If you have a casual attitude, I fell into sin, but if I do it again, no big deal. No, that's not true repentance. True repentance builds in us a desire to avoid our sin and to be who God wants us to be. And I notice the next one is zeal. Not just a desire that we don't fall into sin, but a zeal and a passion that we follow God. A renewed passion to say, I don't want to be in sin anymore. In fact, I want to follow God. It, It awakes in us a new zeal and a passion for God. And lastly, it says this, what clearing of yourselves In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I love this one. When we sin and we fall into sin, we have to realize that we've we've hurt others. Many times we've hurt our testimony. And it's not just going to be okay right away. (laughs) We have to kind of prove ourselves. There's a clearing of ourselves. Paul says, I've seen you, your track record, you're different You've changed. You've let everybody see it. You're willing to kind of put your your new life and your new actions on trial and say, hey, I'm different now, and I'll show you, I'll prove it to you with my life. I'm clear in this matter. It's not who I am anymore. Repentance brings about a desire to prove ourselves and to clear ourselves of the matters in which we have fallen. So here's a list of some things we should be watching for in our own hearts and lives. Have we really repented of our sin? I want you to notice really quickly what's not on the list. What's not on the list is Paul saying, and I know that you were really genuine in your repentance because you never messed up again. And you're perfect, and you've proven yourself to be perfect in this matter. Perfection is not a a fruit of repentance. Progress is. God's not looking for perfection. We are imperfect sinners who are going to continue to fall and will continually need to apply repentance to our lives, but are we progressing? All of these words are words that speak of desire and direction. It's not a matter of have you reached the destination. It's what is your desire in your heart to avoid sin, to live for God? What direction are you headed? If you're continually moving in a direction further from God, further from God, with no concern, with no desire, with no care, you ought to be careful about whether or not the fact that you've really repented, maybe confessed, but have we truly repented? Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of? I want to encourage you to repent and to take that seriously. So number one, we see repentance defined. Number two, we see repentance displayed. And then lastly, we're going to kind of come back to Revelation. And what does it mean to have repentance from desires? When John told the church here, hey, you need to repent of your lost love, of your first, of leaving your first love, what does that mean and what does that look like? And what does it look like in our lives if we're saying, hey, I'm right there with the Ephesian church. I've, I've left my first love. I'm doing the right things on the outside, but I've lost my love and my passion and my desire. What does it look like for us to repent? Well, I want you to notice in Revelation chapter chapter 2, notice the the word that the Bible uses. He says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. It doesn't say thou hast lost your first love. It says you've left your first love. I think that's a little different. We can lose something by accident, without intention, and we wish we didn't. But leaving carries with it the intention, a little bit more action and intention. In fact, a leaving with it carries the connotation that you left one thing for another. That you left one place. Oh, I'm leaving. Where are you going? 
I'm heading somewhere else. He doesn't say they lost their love. He says they left their first love. I believe that all of us have something that our heart passionately desires. Similar to what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 when it says, no man can serve two masters. For either he will love the one, or sorry, hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's something that your heart desires. There's something that is at the center of your love, your affection, and your devotion. It may be another person. It may be popularity or status. It may be money or financial gain. It could be comfort. It could be pleasure, yourself, your image. There's something at the center of our hearts, affections, and devotion. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Those verse teaches, verses teach us this, this principle. Love of the world and the things in the world and the love of the Father do not coexist. Not should not, they do not. So the question is, which one abides in you? Love for the Father and the things of the Father and from the Father or love of the world and the things of the world? I want you to read this verse with me. I think it's on the screens there. Psalm chapter 37 and verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give, ye, give thee the desires of thy heart. We can ask the question this afternoon, why don't I desire God the way I want to desire God? Why don't I desire God the way that I used to desire God? Here's the question you must ask yourself. What do you delight in? Because our desires follow our delights. If we choose to be uh, spending all of our time, giving all of our energy, our love, our devotion to the things of the world, should we be surprised that we don't desire the Father? If we choose our delight in entertainment, if we choose our delight in, in sports or, or fitness, if we choose our delight in other people and, and relationships, if we choose our delight in work and career and financial gain, if we choose our delight in, in personal beauty or self-promotion, should we be surprised that we don't desire God, but rather desire more money or promotion or desire more status or fame or desire more pleasure or comfort? Or Are we surprised that the things that we delight ourselves in show up in our desires? We shouldn't be. The Bible is very clear. Our desires follow our delights. So what are you delighting in? What is the object of your love and your, your affection and your devotion? How do you spend your free time? What does your mind go to when you have that free moment? I mean, what is at the center of your heart? What do you delight yourself in? Man, I wish that my testimony could be like the psalmist. Look at this verse in Psalm 27.4. One thing... Have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm is like one thing. This is all I want. This is all I'm asking of the Lord, that I could dwell in his temple forever and behold the beauty of the Lord. Is it any wonder that David is one of the most passionate, desirous followers in all the Bible? 
when he says, all I want in life is just to, just to see the beauty of God. That's all I want. It's just forever to be in the temple and just focus on the beauty of God. It's no wonder why he's the one who writes all of these psalms about his passion, his desire to follow after God. Man, I wonder what we delight in. I wonder what we would ask the Lord of. He says, I just want to see the beauty of God. That's why last week we tried to spend some time remembering God and his beauty and his goodness and his faithfulness to us. Because our desires follow our delight. We won't do it this afternoon, but I encourage you to take some time and look through the book of Psalms. Just, just search the word delight in the book of Psalms. See how many times he says things like this. I delight in thy word. I delight in thy law. I delight to do thy will. I delight in thy precepts, in thy law, in thy word. His delight was the Lord and his word and his will. It's no wonder that that was his desire as well. At the beginning of the pandemic, the beginning of 2020, um, I realized that I needed to make some changes in my health. Um, I was very overweight, <laughs> to put it uh, pretty lightly. I was pretty overweight, and uh, we're about to head into lockdown, so I'm thinking my activity level is not exactly about to go up. It's about to go down. Uh, and the doctor told me that my cholesterol, cholesterol was way too high, okay? So not things that you want to hear, not looking good. So I knew I needed to make some changes, especially with the stay-at-home orders, okay? And so in doing some research and getting some help and some advice, one of the things I decided was is that all the calories, because weight loss, you know, the name of the game is calories in, calories out, okay? So uh, one of the things I wanted to do was all the calories I'm taking in, I want to eat them, not drink them. Because when I eat the calories, they actually make me feel full, and they help me to feel full and not eat so much. But I can drink a lot of calories, and they just kind of feel empty, right? They don't fill you up. They don't sustain you. And so uh, many people say, don't drink your calories. It's just empty calories. So I made that decision. And, and along with that decision had to come a decision in changing the way I drink my coffee. All right? So when I started drinking coffee, I started drinking double-double, uh, like every good Canadian, right? And, and I had kind of changed and made some adaptations and cut out a little bit of sugar here, and I was down to two-in-one. And then sometimes I would drink uh, just a double cream. Uh, but I just made the decision to kind of cut cold turkey and say, I'm going to drink black coffee. Water and black coffee. That's what I'm going to drink. That's all I'm going to drink. All right? So I started to do that. And people would kind of see you and see me drinking black coffee. And they'd be like, oh, you drink your black, black coffee. You like it like that? And I would answer to them. And I would be convincing myself as much as I'd be convincing them. Like, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's, it's not bitter at all. No, it's great. This is how I enjoy it. Right? And I, I'm telling them, but I'm really telling myself. I'm convincing myself that this is how I like it. But I just kept doing that. I stuck with that decision. Over time, my taste began to change. In fact, it changed so much, the fact that Aloma and I, for Christmas uh, a couple years ago, decided to buy each other a gift. We bought each other an espresso machine for our house. Ooh, it's nice. And now I don't just drink black coffee. I drink, like, uh, shots of espresso, Americanos. In fact, my taste has so changed that if you were to give me a double-double coffee now, it would really seriously make me sick. It would make me feel sick. The cream and sugar, I, I cannot drink it. I used to love it, and I cannot take it anymore. I just drink straight black coffee, and I love it. Here's the lesson. Sometimes we don't have a taste, a delight, for what we ought to have a delight for, because we have a taste for everything else. And you wonder, why don't I desire, man, why don't I desire God? It's because we're delighting in the world. We don't have a room for God in our appetite, 
And we're tasting in the entertainment of the world, and we're tasting in the popularity of the world, and the status of the world, and the, the money of our careers, and we're, we're f- so full of everything else that's in the world that we have no room in our taste buds for God. There's no desire, there's no appetite for him. What does the Bible say? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So maybe today you need to make a decision to say, you know what, I'm not going to delight in the things of the world anymore. Those physical relationships, the status, the money, that's not going to be my delight anymore. I'm going to find my delight in God. It's not going to be easy at first. I didn't like drinking black coffee at first. But our desires follow our delights. And so the challenge today is this. Have you repented? Are there evidence of true biblical repentance in your life? Is there a, a continual posture and attitude of repentance, turning from self and sin and turning to God. Can you say like the psalmist, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action and a change of directions. I want to encourage you today to repent. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Thank you for listening.